Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host, David Rothkopf. I am here in New York City, as we are every week at the end of the week, and as we are every week, I am joined by Ryan Goodman, co-editor of Just Security and a professor at NYU Law School. This week, we are also joined by Maya Wiley, a professor at the New School and an MSNBC legal analyst, and someone else you may have seen on MSNBC, Tom Nichols, who is the author of The Death of Expertise, a really important book, which you should read if you haven't read yet, and a professor at the Naval War College. His views do not represent those of the U.S. government, um, but uh, his views are really important. And if you haven't been following these folks uh, on the air and on Twitter, uh, you should start doing that. Uh, obviously, this has been a very big week. I'm looking across at Ryan. He looks a little, <laughs> looks like he's had a rough week, um, uh, we, as, we, as we all have. Uh, and I just thought I'd start, since it was a historic week in a number of respects, by trying to put that in perspective to get your views. Let me start with you, Maya. Well, that's a big question. I feel like I should be sitting next to Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I let me back up and say, you know, I think the most important thing to remember about this week is that it was critically important that there was a uh, an, a proceeding in the Senate. I won't call it a trial because it was not a full trial and it should have been. And I know that a lot of people are deflated about that. But I think it is so important that there was a process that the notion of whether or not the outcome was predetermined did not stop a process, meaning that the House managers got up and presented their case, not just to the senators, but to the American public. Uh, and that people were able to get a sense of just how much evidence there was and what that evidence showed in terms of Donald Trump's both unconstitutional conduct and, and also probably criminal conduct. And that that is important because two things happened. One, we saw senators, we saw Republican senators have to admit that what he did was wrong and inappropriate and even got Mitt Romney, one senator, to vote the evidence in terms of conviction. And that, I think, does matter despite the outcome. And I also think it matters because at the end of the day, if the Constitution is to be protected, it's because we the people go to the polls and we vote with a full sense of the information that we have on the candidates who will be before us. And we do have more information now about Donald Trump than we had and would have had if there was not an impeachment proceeding. And I will also add that while watching him, both in that State of the Union address, 
and in, uh, I didn't watch the press conference today, but following it, showed exactly what Adam Schiff predicted. We are seeing an empowered and unleashed Donald Trump. And the, what we all have to do is keep doing what the Constitution tells us to, which is to keep pushing for transparency, getting the facts, and making informed decisions. Well, we'll come back to that since that's been made a little bit more difficult in the course of the ensuing week as well. But yes. let's start. Let's start with the, the the these kind of overview reactions. So, Tom, you know, after however many long walks on the beach, what 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 is your perspective on this? I'm a little less depressed than everybody else because my expectations were so low to begin with. Um, but also because I'm like Maya, I, I'm glad that there was a process and that all of this got aired in front of the country and that Republican senators had to go on record. But as a political matter, I also think it was a good idea to get this done and get it over with because there was never going to be any other outcome from this Republican Party and these Republican senators. And so uh, had the House uh, Democrats taken the bait about um, you know, not rushing to impeachment and having a full trial and a, or rather a full investigation and, and taken all of the, the dumb bait that the Republicans were laying out there. You know, let's all go to court so that we can argue that you don't have any standing to be in court kind of bait. Um, I think, you know, the, the trial uh, or the, the, the procedure, whatever we want to call it, accomplished something very important. It showed that the House was willing to hold Trump responsible, and it put all of the Republicans out there front and center, and now unable to complain about all of this dragging out as a political process. Because the other thing that would have happened had the House taken longer or tried to subpoena people or call witnesses, um, then the Republicans would have played the Goldilocks game. Well, this trial's, th this investigation's too fast. This investigation's too slow. This investigation is too close to an election. This investigation has too many witnesses to call because we're so close to, to an election, and on and on and on. And I think uh, at this point, we're heading into the la you know, this eight months <clears throat> of an election, and no one can claim not to know the things they know now. And I, I actually think that the press conference today, which I did watch, and it was horrifying, um, was in some ways a good thing. I, you know, there were people watching that and saying, why is CNN broadcasting, you know, this madness? Why is MSNBC putting this on the air? I think it's really important to put the president out there in front of the American public when he's losing his mind every day and tell people, this is what you're voting for. This is what you're going to get. This vindictive, unhinged, paranoid, um, you know, ranting old man uh, who is clearly unfit for the job. And I, and I think, you know, if we were doing this in, uh, you know, April or May, it would be even worse because I think people would be even more tired of it. I think the bounce uh, for Trump would be even higher because I, I think the, this whole business just eventually confuses people and tires them out. And I think the Democrats did the best they could do with it. They made the case. The Republicans, with the exception of Romney, have utterly shamed themselves. And I think we have a little more clarity in our national political life. So I'm, I'm not as depressed as everybody else, um, purely on a political level. As a constitutional matter, matter uh, I'm, I'm deeply depressed. I'm, I'm you know, existentially depressed about the, the unwillingness of millions of people and dozens of representatives to defend the Constitution. 
Well, as every week, the thing that's most important to me in this podcast is Ryan's mental health. And I'm just wondering, <laughs> does, does this make you feel better, Ryan? <laughs> um, I guess some of what uh, Tom and Maya said <laughs> makes me feel better. Um, I guess I was going to actually start from the constitutional part. And to me, that's, uh, that is the most depressing uh, part of this whole ordeal, which uh, includes the major decision to not have any witnesses, this most unprecedented decision for any Senate impeachment trial in our history as a country to bar witnesses um, and get away with it. I just thought that just what an extraordinarily low point for the Constitution that everybody should agree to, and especially when over 70% of the American public wanted it, and, and by some polls, a majority in all polls, at least a plurality of Republicans wanted witnesses. So what an anti-democratic, anti-constitutional low point. Um, so that's one. <laughs> and two, uh, just the gross cover-up of Republican senators who didn't say what the president did was wrong or uh, made just ridiculous, incoherent, and sometimes contradictory claims about the House manager's presentation of the evidence uh, was just gross um, and a dereliction of their constitutional duties and and the like. So I just think from a constitutional perspective, um, what bad, awful news uh this was for us. Um, on the other hand, you know, on the political side, I don't know. I think it's too early to know how it's all going to play out. Um, and well, the Democrats yeah. have their act together. Obviously, I was demonstrated that everything's fine. Yeah, I think that's true. It's in good hands. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> oh my! <laughs> I, I this is Maya, yeah. and I I do want to say that um, you know. There no question that it was not a good showing in Iowa. I also think it's so early and we should not get so hung up on Iowa in the sense that it doesn't yet tell us a lot. You know, the caucuses are their own thing. The way the data is done is its own thing. We know from history, experience and research that elections run by government go much more smoothly <laughs> You know, we've 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 got some really important primaries coming up. It's going to be more smooth. And so I mean, I think it's it was a hard week to have that happen. No question. Uh, and not always fun to watch how the candidates themselves handled it. Hmm. <laughs> but but we but we shouldn't we shouldn't get overly concerned based on one state uh, and particularly a state that is fairly unique in how it operates. Uh, I know we have to worry about New Hampshire given the software problem and the way it's going to happen in New Hampshire, but I, I do think it's going to get better pretty fast and we should remember that. Well, I'm going to change the name of this show to the Deep State Glittering Optimism Hour. <laughs> and and no, I think you're absolutely right, Maya. There's no question, there's no question about that. There are other reasons, I think, to come out of the, the processes that began this week with a little bit of uh, of optimism. And Tom, you know, another couple were, um, uh, first of all, Adam Schiff and the House managers did an extraordinary job laying out the case. Uh, I was extremely impressed by the fact that Adam Schiff was not only eloquent, but he was excessively eloquent. He was not grandiloquent. He made points in a way that people could relate to them. And he made points, frankly, that can be cut and used in television commercials later in this year. But he did a great job. And they're the reason that people across the United States actually know the facts 
in an understandable, comprehensible way. Secondly, while Trump may be declaring that he's vindicated, of course, not only was he impeached, he's the first president ever to be impeached in his first term of office. He is the only president that has had a member of his own party vote to to uh, remove him um, from office. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, there is the, you know, the overall fact that people who came to this objectively in search of information know that he did it. You know, if the Republicans deny it, they can deny it. But but I don't I don't think anybody credibly can do that. And, you know, the proof of that was the the Lamar Alexanders and the Rob Portmans and other people saying, yeah, he did it. But, you know, not she shouldn't be removed from office. Now, I, I frankly didn't expect that. I didn't expect Romney. I didn't expect those outcomes. So that's that's positive, too. Right, Tom? I'm not sure it matters that people who came at it with an open mind were were convinced because if people came at it with an open mind to begin with, we wouldn't be in this situation. It was obvious from the start. I agree with you that Schiff, you know, masterfully laid out the case, which is one of the reasons Trump hates him so much. But the case was also a a pretty simple case. And I'm I'm I think one of the things that surprised me was how much effort otherwise intelligent people put into obfuscating that. And I, I almost, it's almost better that Alexander and Portman and others just said, you know what, we can't argue about this anymore. He did it, and we're just not going to impeach him. That's almost a more honest answer than the arguments about what he did. He, he called somebody up. He said, do me a personal favor aimed at a political rival, or you don't get appropriated money to help you in your war against a, a common enemy. People can get their arms around that. They can understand that in a way that they couldn't understand, for example, the Mueller report, you know, which, I mean, you know, I, I was a volume one guy because I'm a Russia person. And, you know, volume one is terrifying. If you know anything about, um, you know, the Russians and how, you know, how any kind of an election works, you know, you see it as plain as day. But the average person doesn't understand this. They could understand what Trump did in this case. And the Democrats laid it out beautifully. But the depressing part, and I guess I want to start injecting gloom and doom back into this, is that for 63 million people, it just doesn't matter. He's their guy. And in fact, the worse he is, the more um, how do we put it? The more guilty he clearly is, the more they like it. They're, they're almost, it's almost like they're enjoying seeing uh, a criminal get away with it. I'm, I'm you know, you're in New York. I'm sitting in Boston right now, the home of you know, James Michael Curley, the guy that got elected while he was sitting in jail. Um, people love that kind of rogue political figure. They just didn't usually like it in the president of the United States, the commander in chief, the guy holding nuclear weapons codes. Um, but we've we've kind of gone to a sort of 1930s Boston, you know, look at look at the bad guy getting away with the thing. So I'm I'm not sure that I would take Adam Schiff's speeches and cut them into ads, for example. I don't think that's going to sway anybody. I don't think it's going to matter. I, I think I would take Trump at the State of the Union and Trump at his um, press conference today. And I would just run clips of that and say, if you're going to vote for this man, this is what you're embracing, and you should own it and be proud of it and say that this is that this is what you want. Because I think too much, and I don't get off this soapbox, but I think the Republicans have succeeded too well in taking the attention off of Trump's completely unhinged and anti-democratic behavior and throwing it onto these muddy questions about 
you know, what did it really mean? Did the aid really get there? What does do me a favor really mean? Um, I think everybody gets it now. That's, that's why I really thought this was a good thing to get done and get it over with. And now uh, I think, and I say this as a never Trumper, former Republican, this election now has to be a referendum on Trump and nothing else. And that's why I am much more depressed about Iowa than Maya is. <laughs> I've been trying to cheer Tom up on Twitter. And I, I don't think it's been working. Yeah. Well, you know, Tom is trying to talk me off the ledge, Maya. It's not happening. I, I, I may have to come find you. Make sure you don't jump. Well, if you if, if you want to be cheered up a little bit, um, go look at that Politico article on the woman who has is making the case that there aren't really swing voters, and that it, it in in this Rachel. Uh, yeah, Rachel. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, because her case is that, you know people sort of are going to vote for their block and it really is going to come down to turnout. And that may make you feel slightly better. Anyway. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. If I, uh, we're talking about Rachel Bittercoffer, right. who, you know, who's her argument is negative partisanship is going to rule this election and Democrats are going to come out and vote and they're going to vote because they want to get rid of Trump so badly. You know, I, I, I was Charlie Brown thinking I was going to kick that football in 2016 <laughs> And Democrats didn't show up for that one. I am really, I don't, I, I agree with Rachel that there is no really, that there's really no such thing as a swing voter. The people that are going to vote for Trump are immobile. They are, cannot be peeled off. It's a cult. They're going to do what they're going to do. I am terribly worried that the Democrats are going to depress their own vote through this primary process and by coming up with a, a candidate that is just going to make some Democrats stay home rather than vote against Trump. And Iowa was the first kind of, you know, chill down my spine that this is going to happen. Um, but, you know, it's early days. I, I don't think I'm going to feel better after New Hampshire because I used to live there. And that state isn't exactly, a, a, you know, a state that makes a lot of sense politically most of the time either. Um, but I, I think, you know, I, I agree with Rachel, but I'm not sure that her analysis is cause for um, optimism if everything turns on turnout. As When I was a Republican, we counted on Democrats not showing up. And I'm yep. worried that's going to happen again. Okay, so Maya, well, what's your perspective on this? Well, so first of all, I, I want to say I think the issue of turnout is absolutely right. And the hardened Trump vote, absolutely agree with. So all those things are important. And, you know, one of the things that we need to remember about um, Trumpism, <laughs> I'm going to call it Trumpism, and it doesn't mean it's true of every single Trump voter, but his ability to use the race wedge uh, is has actually been one of the things that has propelled him. Drive fear around people of color, vilify, stereotype, do it plainly, out in plain sight, trash the playbook on the Southern strategy, forget all that dog whistle stuff, just say the racist stuff out front. He's also done it on gender. But what's so interesting, we keep forgetting the 2018 midterms, and we shouldn't. Um, and we should remember that part of that capture was suburban white women. Uh, we have not, I, I think part of what is happening right now is those ads, when you're talking about the clips from, from Adam Schiff, and by the way, not just Adam Schiff, Val Demings, you know, Hakeem Jeffries, I thought, I thought Representative Crow was also fantastic. I mean, those clips uh, for the core Democratic voters that have to be energized, you know, one of my one of my efforts at making Tom feel better was black women. We are still here. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's certainly true. It is certainly and, and it's not just black women. And and, I sh you know, I say that off the cuff. 
it's critical for black women in particular to participate. It is absolutely important that any Democratic candidate recognize that the base is is and that's and that needs to be energized to turn out our people of color and women and 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 particularly those um, swing district women who swung to the Democrats, who have more reason now than ever to keep swinging in that direction. I, I think there is a legitimate concern about how uh, Democrats in the primaries tear each other to pieces. That is bad. I, my biggest concern was some of the polling that showed that, say, 53% of Bernie Sanders supporters would commit to supporting whoever won the primary. If it wasn't Bernie Sanders, those kinds of statistics are chilling. But yep. that was by and large not true for all the other candidates. And 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 I'm not sure that that is a statistic that necessarily will hold, and particularly if people keep getting reminded of the stakes. And one of the things that Donald Trump did this week is put right squarely back in our faces exactly what those stakes are. And so to the extent that the State of the Union and that press conference today were so depressing, it also is the fuel that we need for the fire that, that gets people engaged, energized, and turned out. And the worst thing that we can do, I think, is get so depressed ourselves that we forget to remind people that is exactly what we saw in that Senate chamber, exactly what we saw in that State of the Union address, exactly what we saw in that press conference, that is the very reason that we have to show up and we have to vote for our consciences, we have to vote for a, a more perfect union, and we have to vote for the rule of law and for national security. And I think those are the kinds of things that the, that the, the clips we can take um, will be helpful for, and also the clips of Trump will will equally be helpful for in terms of motivating people. I'm I'm I don't I can't say this. This is purely subjective, but I also wonder if part of the depressed turnout in Iowa was because people are like, look, I could vote for any number one of these candidates, and I just want to get to the general so we can get Trump out. Let's take a minute for a word from a new sponsor that we're really proud to have join us, C-SPAN. This election season, go deep, direct, and unfiltered. C-SPAN's Campaign 2020 differs from other political coverage for one simple reason. It's C-SPAN. C-SPAN brings you an unfiltered view of politics so you can see the biggest picture for yourself and make up your own mind. On C-SPAN, you'll find depth, uninterrupted coverage of the candidates, the issues, and the events that are steering us to election day. Follow the campaigns and watch the town halls, the rallies, and more live as they happen on C-SPAN, and then dig even deeper and search the candidates' positions over the years using C-SPAN's online archive uh, with more than 250,000 hours of video. Get an unfiltered view of politics with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020 on the C-SPAN television networks, on the C-SPAN app, or online at cspan.org, all brought to you as a public service by your television provider. Make up your own mind with C-SPAN's Campaign 2020. Well, we'll see. And the depressed turnout is 
you know, it wasn't that depressed over over past peaks. Um, but but I couldn't have asked you to sort of set up where I wanted to go with the last 15 minutes of this any better, because I'd like to look forward. What can we expect from Trump going forward? And we've seen a number of signs, even since the Senate had its vote, of what we can expect from Trump going forward. We had the State of the Union, which was a campaign speech um, that was grotesquely theatrical. Uh, we gave a, the Presidential Medal of Freedom to a, a renowned racist and misogynist. Uh, there are all sorts of things, but they played at Trump's base. And I've actually spoken to a bunch of Democrats who found the speech disturbing because they thought it was so good in terms of riling up Trump's base. But then there's been other things. There was this press conference today that everybody is talking about. And I'm going to go first to Ryan, and then I'd like to go to each of you on, on this whole package of things. But but, you know, the president was batshit crazy. And, of course, commentators were trying to say something a little bit like it. But the guy was out of his freaking mind. He's clearly unfit to be the president of the United States. He is clearly saying, you know, he wants revenge. His son is out there tweeting that they've got to go and get revenge on Romney and get revenge on these other people. And Trump is going after Pelosi and he's going after uh, Schiff. But, you know, he's getting revenge of different types uh, because he is feels uh, validated by this whole experience. So today we have the very strange story that the United States government has announced that it's delaying arms transfers to Ukraine for $30 million. Now, you know, to do this the day after all that is stunning and it's tweaking, you know, the Ukrainians and, and, and others. And worst of all, and this came out first on the Maddow show and subsequently Uh, has been confirmed today. You have a memo within the Department of Justice that says any investigations into any presidential candidate or any vice presidential candidate or their staffs will have to be personally signed off on by Bill Barr, who has established himself not as an independent attorney general or someone seeking to protect the Department of Justice or the system of justice in the U.S., but as a personal advocate for the president and his interests. So that's, you know, 48 hours, Ryan. You know, prelude of things to come. Are we in for Trump Unleashed, the horror movie? Yes. (laughs) I think think we've turned down a very um, dark and dangerous corridor um, because he feels bolstered. There's a lot of the media saying that it was a win, that it's emboldened him, that it's his strongest week because there's that one poll from Gallup that suggested an uptick and uh, his highest popularity rating, even though it's still below 50%. So there's a lot of information coming at him saying uh, that he's now has unfettered authority and that Congress is going to be no check. And in fact, they did line up most all of the Republicans, um, either completely or maybe you see a little glimmer of light, as I did, um, around the six uh, Senate Republicans who actually said he did he did it, uh, that the House managers proved their case on the allegations. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I thought that this is, uh, you know, the sign from the Bill Barr's uh, memo is an indication. Uh, if it were in a normal administration, I think it would be appropriate potentially and you could see that coming out of the crossfire hurricane report from the inspector general that you would want sign off from the attorney general on something as highly sensitive as an investigation that implicates a political campaign but because it's bill barr and if you were to think which political campaign would be deserving of (laughs) a potential investigation from the fbi 
he is basically saying that um, if there's any investigation of the Trump campaign, he has to sign off on it. Um, and there's no alert given to Congress that he has rejected an investigation. So there's no way for there to be kind of a fire alarm um, going off that the FBI actually thought there was a fully predicated reason to investigate the Trump campaign, but Bill Barr seems to have blocked it. So it's um, a really frightening corner that we've turned down. And, you know, the demonstration that, you know, what's left of congressional oversight, because yes, the House can exercise it, but they just got away with a blanket stonewalling when the House is acting at the zenith of its power with impeachment authority, what's to... what would mean that the White House would cower um, for the next uh, eight months? I'm I'm worried about that. At the same time, just one um, paradoxical uh, way in which one could think of it optimistic a little bit. I do think the focus on impeachment has dominated the press and the media environment for the past couple of weeks, and people have not focused as much on how the atrocities of the administration um, and other uh, gross things that they've been doing, children in cages and things like that, that I think uh, people will now attend to a little bit more closely, and that'll be part of what we think about when we think about um, what this president is and what he's capable of. Yeah, uh, this is a really good point. And by the way, they haven't focused on what's happening in the world. Syria is going to hell in a handbasket, for example. That policy has clearly failed. We can go and talk about that in many manifestations. But I'd like to go to Tom, and then I'd like to go to Maya, with this same kind of question, which is, we have seen in 48 hours how Trump seems to be signaling he's going to behave post this acquittal. How bad can it get, Tom? Um, I, I think uh, there's two things to consider. One of them is um, not really that hopeful, and the other one is absolutely terrifying. The more hopeful thing is to always to remember that Donald Trump really doesn't understand any of this. He really does not have policies. He's He barks things into a phone, and sometimes they happen, and sometimes they don't. But um, when you ask what's Trump going to do, Trump's going to do what he wanted to do all along. He's going to do rallies, and he's going to, you know, get sweaty and bellow at people in in red hats. Uh, And he doesn't have the slightest bit of interest in actually running anything. But the really dark conclusion that you draw from that is when you're asking what comes next, what you're really asking is what do Mitch McConnell and Bill Barr and a bunch of other, you know, people who are much, who do things in a much quieter and much more insidious way, what do they want? And that's where you really run into trouble. Because at this point, you know, the people that got, that pulled Trump's uh, uh, out of the soup here, um, they can walk in and say, sign this, you know, order, um, giving Alaska back to Russia. And he'll say, fine by me. Um, he, he really, the, you know, the upside is that he doesn't understand what he's doing, but the downside is that there are people around him who do know what they're doing. And, and I would say one piece of evidence for this is this impeachment trial. You know, I, I was talking with a friend from D.C. We were kind of joking about if we were going to do the Ukraine shakedown, you know, we know how, and I'm not even going to talk about how to do it here because I don't want to give anybody ideas, but anybody who's ever worked inside that system knows how it could have been done and gotten away with. The fact that Trump and Giuliani are completely incompetent (laughs) is actually a little glimmer here that they're not going to be able to keep doing things like that because they will they will get caught. The people who won't get caught are people like McConnell and Barr and others. The only other positive thing to think about over the next eight months is that I actually think that a lot of elected Republicans and I don't mean, you know, Jordan and Gohmert and Nunes 
and the crackpot coalition, I, I mean, you know, the Portmans and, and others, I think they're actually secretly hoping that Trump loses. They, they want to be delivered of this person and, you know, go back to being in the opposition if that's what it takes uh, against the Democratic president, because it's starting to wear them down. And they, they realize that over time, they're, they're just going to start paying a price for having to carry this water because Trump will betray them at some point. You know, this is the thing that they never learn. Trump will stab them in the back at some point. They needed to get through this. They, they're just trying to get to 2020. So I think what you're going to see is Republicans kind of standing back and saying, we've carried a lot of water for you, but, you know, we can't stop you. We're not going to body block you from going out and making, uh, you know, losing your mind in public. Um, but I think the other thing to worry about is the people to watch are people like Mitch McConnell and some of the people in the cabinet, because they're going to try and raid the the um, the candy store uh, before November and and I think that's the thing that really worries me. So so my same question for you, but let me just add a dimension. Then I'll go to Ryan, who'd like to jump in with something. But um, you know, we talk about this in the context of what we've seen already. But the president has actually been given license and 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 a sort of bulletproof defense going forward from both McConnell and Barr that suggests that he will do anything he can to win the election. And it's not just reaching out to Ukraine or reaching out to Russia. It's voter suppression. It's a lot of things the Republicans have been doing for a long time. It's going to be embracing false narratives. It's going to be, I mean, there, there are a lot of things that he can do to, to uh, undermine the validity of the upcoming election. And uh, you know, that, that's of some concern to me, but I'm just wondering uh, you know, do you share that concern and do you have others? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, I will say I think one of the reasons we're in the mess we are in is because Democrats, particularly the donor class, did not recognize and pay sufficient attention to local elections and to building state houses and to thinking about the long game around things like redistricting. And this has been happening since 2010. You know, we should say very explicitly, it's not just Donald Trump. Um, so this the Republican Party organizing anti-democratic uh, methods of ensuring that they were able to hold on to and build political power has been also fundamentally an assault on the U.S. Constitution and in particular on the elderly, on students and people of color broadly. So it's not new. And um, we absolutely need to fear it. There was a, a decision out of the Ninth Circuit just recently uh, being very plain and explicit about Arizona uh, Republican Party's efforts that it called explicitly in an opinion racist. And that's pretty unusual, but that's where we've gotten to in this country. So I think that those are absolutely the right things to worry about. Um, and I, I have to say, I agree with both Ryan and Tom. I think that this all comes back to, you know, there's another lens to look at this through, uh, in addition to the ones that have already been mentioned, which is, what is it that people want and care about? I mean, you know, Donald Trump, this is one of the meanest administrations that we've had. And that's not about party, right? You know, George Bush had compassionate conservatism. I didn't agree with it, but it, it was an effort to care about people, at least nominally. The people who are hurt by some of the policies that are coming out of the out of the Trump White House that are being driven down include things like kicking 700,000 people off of nutrition programs 
who can't get enough to eat without them. We're talking about, you know, capping Medicaid so that more people cannot see a doctor when they're sick. I think the false narrative problem is a significant one because this narrative that he gave the State of the Union that he magically lifted 10 million people off of welfare. No, he cut the cord and a lot of people are flying out there without a net and they're getting hurt. And the, the, the effort to actually go back to the, the, the experiences that Americans have every single day, um, that's going to be important. And part of what Donald Trump and his White House and the Republicans are going to continue to do is harm people where they live, how they live, no matter who they are, if part of what they need is help from the government. And if there's a way for us to continue to build on this notion of what, it, what does it mean to be a we, and what does it mean to have a government that takes care of the needs? Because I think a lot of the things that he was praising himself for in that State of the Union were things, number one, he can't necessarily completely take credit for, but number two, that he himself is unraveling. Uh, and he's unraveling it in a way that's going to have very significant impact and maybe even sooner the, than the election. So making sure that we're being very clear about how people are being harmed and who's harming them and how that can be fixed and how it didn't used to be this way is going to be an important part of what I think Democrats do. And it's got to be meaningful and it's got to speak directly to the actual lives that people live and are struggling to live. Because unfortunately, there's a lot more struggle out there despite some of the positive economic indicators. Yeah, and by the way, there is a kind of drumbeat of malevolence that's not just domestic. They want to uh, uh, pull out of treaty on landmines and restore the use of landmines. They want to, you know, I mean, the, the story, the famous story where Rex Tillerson said, you know, he's a fucking moron, uh, was preceded a few minutes before by Trump being presented with the fact that we'd reduced our nuclear warheads from 32,000 to 6,500. And he said, I want 32,000. I want to go back. And, you know, we you know we don't sit and worry as we once did about you know nuclear Armageddon. But this is a president who wants to make nuclear weapons smaller and more usable, who wants to invest in a capability that would be incredibly destructive. And, and that's... You know, this is- this is the infantilization of the American electorate by uh, of a significant portion of the electorate by by Trump that he does bad things in a demonstrative way and tells people he gives them permission to feel good about being cruel and about being contrary. Um, you know, he, he reminds me of the of the boy in the turn of the screw when the governor says, why did you do this terrible thing? And he said, to show you that I can. And people are, are, you know, kind of embracing that to say, I'm not particularly happy with my life. I don't, I feel like other people are doing better than I am. So I want to be functionally cruel to other people because it just makes me feel better. And Trump is a huge permission card to do that, whether it's in internationally or domestically. And I think my, when Maya said, what is it you want? This is the question I always find myself asking Trump voters. What do you want other than to just make people you don't like miserable? And they just can't really answer that question. It's always this kind of head shake of you don't understand and, you know, things have to change. But it, but it always comes back to the same thing. I want to be mean to other people because I think they're somehow getting something, especially if they're people of color, they're getting something that I'm not getting, and, and I want somebody to go out there and put a stop to it. 
Ryan. Uh, just and then I'll go to Maya. Then we're going to wrap up. But. Yep. Uh, just to quickly piggyback on a couple of things that Maya and Tom both said. So back to what Tom had said about keep your eye on people like McConnell and Barr. I was just going to add to that um, Mike Pompeo. And that what fits exactly the framework that I think Tom had laid out is uh, escalation of the conflict with Iran. And one of the things that happened in this past week is the OMB sent a one-page letter to Congress saying that the president would uh, veto the legislation to over uh, to um, rescind the 2002 authorization for use of military force. I tweeted about it. I looked. There's no coverage of this letter uh, in the press um, because the letter is a remarkably broad interpretation of the authority of the president to use force against Iran under a theory that does not work for the 2002 AMF. So he's actually claiming Congress has authorized me to do this. I, I never need to go back to Congress for authorization. Absolutely remarkable, and I fear that somebody like Pompeo might in fact, in fact think exactly what Tom laid out. This is my window. I've got eight months. I can make this happen, just as that might in fact be the very thing that happened with Soleimani. There might be good reasons to escalate with Iran, but I think that the Congress has to be involved and it has to be a you know, a rational determination, not something that is cooked up by somebody like Pompeo. So that's one on that. And the second, I, I guess this is maybe an amendment to some part of our discussion. I'm, I still think there's another segment of the Trump voters, those very folks who voted for Obama and for Trump. And something also happened this week in terms of ways in which the Republican leadership covered up uh, for Trump, that people on Twitter and elsewhere in commentary were starting to say, you know, we need something that's nonpartisan, cross-partisan, in the sense of it's not about Democrats versus Republicans, it's really about anti-authoritarianism. Um, and maybe it's also about what this conversation is about, anti-cruelty, um, that there's really a need here that we can see in this space for some for people to rise up against this administration and this this president has got nothing to do with party. It's 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 much more fundamental than party. Yeah, and a plausibly positive message tends to work. If you go back over elections, the two things that mark candidates that tend to win are the ones that tend to present themselves as outsiders because Washington's not popular, and the ones that people believe are likely to deliver a more positive outcome for them doesn't always have to be optimistic but they tend to do that so my last word you were going to say something uh, well i think, think look i come from a people who have experienced authoritarianism for centuries uh in this country and i the reason i say that is because one of the things i think we have to remember is we have always been fighting for our better angels and we have made progress and we always have um, these periods of retrenchment. This is the most significant period of, period of retrenchment in my lifetime. I, I don't think it just magically appeared in 2016. But what so encourages me is that there's so many people who were not engaged in politics before 2016 who have been marching in the streets in the women's march we had 19% of people never marched or done anything of that kind before those folks are still out there and they are still deeply troubled by what they're seeing and more so and I, I think that this point about you know, getting to a, 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 a better we and it, it is much less about partisanship now 
it does have to be a vision for the country that is a that is a unitary vision for the country meaning it's a we it's an us and i think there's something we can tap there that we have to remember because this fight that we've been having for many of us is not a new fight it's just a new battle in that very very long war well i think that's a, a really important point and a great way to capsulize this conversation and what we need to focus on going forward. I wish we could go on and on. I do want to say that I think uh, I've listened to most of the post-impeachment discussions, and this was one of the more thoughtful and in-depth ones. And obviously, one of the reasons we do the podcast is to be able to go into these things in greater length than one is able actually to do on a television show. All of these folks are folks you can see on MSNBC, and I encourage you to watch them and follow them on Twitter and elsewhere. Um, and I hope that uh, Maya and uh, Tom, who are first time on, on the pod, will come back sometime soon because you are terrific. Uh, and Ryan, I hope you come back every week because I don't know what we would do otherwise. And, and Tom, uh, Tom, don't yes. jump. Don't jump, <laughs> don't jump well, Tom. Well, Maya, think of, the car- think of the karmic uh, turn about that a middle-aged former Republican is with you and counting on middle-aged black women across the country to save America now. <laughs> See, there's hope. Uh, because, <laughs> there is hope, and 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 it, it just a, means it's a very uh, it's a new world we're living in. Yeah, yes. well, coming to your senses. Um, but I, you know, I'm grateful for it. Um, in any event, uh, uh, folks, if you want to uh, hear what we're doing, we've got other episodes. We've actually got a special episode coming up tomorrow um, uh, with uh, uh, Sarah Kenzior of Gaslit Nation and uh, 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 AJ Gill from. Uh, 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 Muller She Wrote podcast, in which we're going to announce our big upcoming event where we're bringing together all of the leading podcasts that talk about Washington in Washington on May 21st at the Warner Theater in Washington. Uh, we're doing this with Ryan and Just Security and uh, uh, and about 20 other great podcasts. It's going to be an amazing event. So tune in. We're going to talk, obviously, about substance, but we'll also tell you a little bit about this event and how you can get in the front of the line for tickets because it's something I think you'll want to join us. And who knows, maybe we'll persuade Maya and Tom to join us there for that conversation, too. I think we're going to have food trucks so there will actually be something to eat there. So that's another reason, conceivably, you might want to join us. Uh, in any event, go to the DSRnetwork.com for more information and join us again on some upcoming episode of Deep State Radio. Thank you very much.